This episode is brought to you by Podbean. Podbean is an easy and powerful way to start podcasting. We give you all of the tools you need for a successful podcast, such as unlimited podcast hosting, podcast distribution, monetization options for podcasts of any size, and live stream podcasting capabilities. Sign up today at www.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Hello and welcome to A Murderous Affair. My name is Gabrielle and I'm your host. Thank you to those who come back and listen every week. And this episode, we're going to be talking about the murderous Belle Gunness. But before we talk about her, I want to make some announcements regarding last week's episode. So, all right, here's one thing. I posted um, kind of just the highlights in the Reddit thread, R History. And I just kind of want, like, just sharing general stuff. Like, not so much talking about the episode, but just sharing, like, general information about La Costa of Gaul. And because it's Reddit, um, I did get to hear from some people about certain things that they had a problem with in that episode. But a debate came up concerning the use of me calling La Costa a serial killer. And how to kind of tell the difference between a serial killer and a contract killer or assassin. And this actually opened up a lot of discourse. So, so some people said that serial killer is more than just murder it's a psychological aspect they seem to enjoy the killing i'm sure there have been serial killers put in legitimate killing professions which which does make sense and actually makes history kind of interesting when you look at it that way a lot of people kind of were going back and forth on like the term a serial killer means that they didn't have motive or they did have motive and a contract killer is more just the motive is that they get paid to do this so really it was just a really interesting discourse to read to read through um i'm not going to go into every single comment that everyone made because there were a lot of them but if you're interested check out the R history thread and the post. Now, personally, I don't tend to discriminate like when I use what word because to me, a serial killer is someone who kills more than one person and a contract killer can technically be classified as a serial killer. For example, like Richard Kuklinski, who's the Iceman, he was a contract killer, but also is considered a serial killer so I don't know that's just my personal take but I would love to hear from you guys and if you use one more than the other or if you have specific circumstances when you use like contract killer versus serial killer someone had a really good point when they commented and it was serial killers don't get paid they do it for the thrill contract killers do it for a paycheck but serial killers who need gainful employment may overlap. So that's kind of um, an interesting way to look at it where it doesn't necessarily always have to be one versus the other. But anyway, that was just something I thought was really interesting that I wanted to bring up and see what you all thought. So the murderess of the day is Belle Gunness. Now she actually has a couple different names, which I'll talk about as we go into talking more about her, but she's also known by a few nicknames, which are Hell's Bell, the Black Widow, or Lady Bluebeard. Now, because Belle changes her name a couple of times throughout her life, I'm just going to be referring to her as Belle throughout this whole story because that's kind of the name she became known as. Belle Gunness was born Brynhild, Paul's daughter, Storset, to a family of farmers in Norway on November 11th, 1859. She grew up as one of seven kids to a relatively poor family and all of them worked on the farm. So not a lot is really confirmed about her life growing up before she came to America. There are some neighbors who gave positive statements like she was quiet and helped and then there are other neighbors after she became infamous who said that she'd always known signs that she was evil and etc so there's also kind of an un a common but unverified story floating around about her early history in 1877 bell gunness attended a country dance while she was pregnant and while she was there she was attacked by a man who kicked her in the stomach and caused her to have a miscarriage the man who assaulted her came from a rich family and was never prosecuted and according
according to those who knew her, after that attack, her personality completely changed, and the man who attacked her actually died not long after that. And his cause of death uh, post-mortem was said to be stomach cancer. But like I said, that's an unverified story. I've seen it in a couple different articles about her, but everyone leads with the fact that there's not really any documented proof. In the 1880s, she made the voyage from Norway to America. When she got there, she changed her name to Bella Peterson as she started working as a housemaid. She really didn't want to be doing this, according to everyone who knew her. She had come to America because she believed in the American dream and thought that she could get rich quickly and find a husband and basically kind of live her life as a pampered princess. She had a sister named Nellie who had moved to America a couple of years before and said that Belle was insane on the subject of money. So Nellie had actually married a really rich man and kind of lived this luxurious life that Belle was extremely jealous of. In 1884, Belle married a man named Mads Sorensen. They lived a normal, basic life for the first decade of their marriage. Belle wasn't able to have children, uh, but apparently was really maternal. She was really active in working with Sunday school children and reportedly loved spending time with her nieces and nephews, especially the young ones. In 1891, she adopted an orphan girl named Jenny. And in 1894, Belle and her husband Mads opened a candy store. And a year later, that shop burned down. So apparently, Belle claimed that an oil lamp had fallen over and made the store catch on fire. But... When the investors came and they looked into this fire, they saw absolutely nothing that made it seem like an oil lamp had started it, which is, of course, suspicious. But since the insurance company didn't have any evidence to prove that it was arson, they had to pay out the expenses. So after that, the family sold the store and moved to a suburb which wasn't too far away. Over the next two years, they ended up adopting four more children. And then this part gets pretty sad. Soon after the babies were taken in by the family, two of them died. And because at this time period, infant mortality rates were so high, they weren't really considered overly suspicious, but suspected that Belle may have had a hand in the deaths of these infants after she received the money that she would get from taking care of them. After the deaths, they moved to a new house, and another fire is caused by what they call a defective heating apparatus. Firefighters were able to save the building, but the family got insurance money anyway because of the damage that was done. Now, eight months after this fire, um, Mads came home complaining of a headache. Belle claims that she gave him some medicine and he went to sleep. And when she went to check on him later, she found him dead in his bed. His death was thought to be caused by a cerebral hemorrhage. But later on, upon looking back at his symptoms, they are also consistent with the side effects of poisoning. And then there's a bit of a gap in the history after his death. But in 1901, Belle remarried to Peter Gunnis. And then shortly after their marriage, um, on December 16th at 3 a.m., Belle's neighbors were woken up by Belle's adopted daughter, Jenny pounding on the door and asking for help. The neighbors ran over and saw that Peter was on the floor and had a huge injury on the back of his head. Now, of course, police are called, doctors are called, and Belle is hysterical at this point. And when they're taking her statement, this is what she says. Her husband had gone to get his shoes, which he left in the kitchen to stay warm by the stove. While he was doing that, a meat grinder had fallen from the shelf above his head and hit him, while also knocking over a boiling pot of broth and burning his neck. He told her that he was alright, and then he went back to bed, and when she went back to check on him, he was lying dead on the floor. Police are really suspicious at this point. First, the autopsy showed absolutely no trace of him being burned by anything at all. The wound on the back of his head was also inconsistent with 
what the damage would be from a meat grinder and instead looked like it had been multiple hits instead of one. Um, there was also the fact that Peter had two life insurances active at the time of his death. One of them was expiring that day and the other one was just starting. So it was a weird day where he had two active at the same time. And Belle was able to receive a payout from both of them. They questioned her daughter Jenny but it, her daughter says almost the exact same responses that Belle gave. Because there was a lack of witnesses and there was a lack of evidence, his death was ruled an accident. After her second husband's death, Belle Gunnis moved to Laporte, Illinois, and Belle started taking ads out in the marriage section of those Norwegian newspapers. Comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in Laporte County, Indiana, desires to make acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with view of joining fortunes. No reply by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Um, and from the pictures I've seen of her, if you guys have ever watched The Handmaid's Tale, she looks a lot like Aunt Lydia. Like, several men responded to her ads. One was John Moe, who arrived from Elbow Lake, Minnesota. So he actually responded to the ads, they had a correspondence, he brought more than a thousand dollars with him to pay off mortgage. When Belle introduced him, he she introduced him as her cousin. And then within a week of arriving at her farm, he suddenly disappeared. And neighbors report seeing that one day he was just there and the other day he was gone. And when they asked about him, Belle said that he had left. Um, but no one had seen him take any of his stuff with him. Her next victim was George Anderson. Reportedly during dinner with Anderson, she talked about how she was having difficulty paying off her mortgage. And Anderson agreed that he would pay off the mortgage if they decided to get married. Later that night, Anderson woke up and saw that she was standing over him while he slept, holding a candle and, and with a strange expression on her face. Without saying anything, she just ran from the room, like she just took off. Now, Anderson left. He, he ran from the house and took a train back to Missouri. Now, at this time, she started ordering these huge trunks, like those ones that you see in antique stores that are used to you know, hold all your earthly possessions. Uh, there was a driver named Clyde Sturgis who delivered, who delivered these trunks and he would later make a statement how she would lift these enormous trunks like boxes of marshmallows, toss them onto her wide shoulders and carry them into the house. She kept the shutters of her house closed day and night and many of her neighbors, uh, the farmers who drove past her ranch late at night saw her digging in the hog pen. An elderly widow from Iola, Wisconsin was the next to appear. His name was Ol B. Budsberg. You know, Olby, Olby Budsberg there. Um, he was last seen alive at Laporte Savings Bank on April 6, 1907. And while he was at the bank, he mortgaged all the land that he owned in Wisconsin, signed over a deed, and was able to get several thousand dollars in cash. And his sons had no idea that their father had left to visit Belganis. When they discovered the trail of letters between the two, they wrote to her and asked if she had seen their father. And she wrote back and said that she had never met him. Throughout the year 1907, it's suspected that there were many other middle-aged men disappeared on visits to the Gunness farm. Um, but because there is like a lack of evidence and many of these men are suspected to be immigrants from Norway without any ties in America, they have never been concretely identified. So the next known victim is in December 1907. Andrew Helgelian wrote to her and began to exchange letters. One letter was dated January 13, 1908, and this was found at his, his 
farm and it said to the dearest friend in the world no woman in the world is happier than i am i know that you are now to come to me and be my own i can tell from your letters that you are the man i want it does not take one long to tell when you like a person it does not take one long to tell when to like a person and you i like better than anyone in the world i know think how we will enjoy each other's company you the sweetest man in the whole world we will be alone with each other can you conceive of anything nicer i think of you constantly when i hear your name mentioned and this is when one of the dear children speaks of you or i hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song it is beautiful music to my ears my heart beats in wild rapture for you my andrew i love you come prepared to stay forever that last line is extremely chilling Ugh, crazy okay so after receiving that letter, Andrew obviously went directly to Belgunis' farm in January 1908. He drew his savings from his bank, which totaled around $2,900. And a couple of days after he arrived, he and Belgunis came to the savings bank in Laporte and deposited the check. And then he vanished a couple of days later. And it was at this time that she started to have problems with one of um, the men that she had hired to help her on the farm, Ray Lamphere. So I guess now is a good time to say that this is sort of the turning point in the story. Belle Gunness had hired a man named Ray Lamphere, and he kind of just did things around the farm with her. He was just kind of the general maintenance guy. He was extremely in love with her, and he was also extremely jealous of the men who came to her house. And he would start making scenes whenever these men would show up. On February 3rd, 1908, she fired him. And then she went to the courthouse and declared that he was not in his right mind and would be a, and was a menace to the public. She was so convincing that local authorities had to hold a sanity hearing. Lampier was actually pronounced sane and released during the this hearing, but Belle Gunness went back a few days later to complain to the sheriff that he had visited her farm and was arguing with her, and that he posed a threat to her family. Now, in order to talk about this turning point, we have to know a little bit about Belle Gunness's history with Ray Lampier. Around this time, when she and Lampier began having these problems, it's reported that on one occasion he confided to a farmer named William Slater that Helgillian won't bother me no more. We fixed him for keeps. Now, at this time, Helgillian had long since disappeared, and his brother was really worried when he failed to return home, so he wrote to Belle and asked her, like, if she had seen his brother and where he had gone. Now, she wrote back saying that his brother was not at her farm and that she believed he went to Norway to visit relatives. Azel Hilgillian was calling BS on this one. He wrote back and said that he did not believe his brother would do that. And moreover, he believed that his brother was still in Laporte. Now, Belganis, she stuck with her story. She told him that if he wanted to come out and look for his brother, she would help him look. But she warned him that searching for missing persons was very expensive if she was going to be involved in this manhunt he needed to be prepared to pay her for her efforts it's suspected that at this point it became clear to belle that lampier represented an unresolved problem for her he knew what had really happened or he insinuated that he knew what really happened to andrew Helgillian. and now andrew's brother was that could lead to a police investigation her actions at this point was that she went to a lawyer in laporte and she said that she feared for her life and her children. Ray Lampier, she said, had threatened to kill her multiple times and burn her house down. She wanted to make a will in case, just in case Lampier went through with his threats. So the lawyer drew up her will and she left her entire estate to her children. She then went to one of the banks holding the mortgage for her property and paid this off. Now she didn't go to the police at all to tell them about Lampier's alleged threats. Belle Gunness can feel the many forces kind of compounding around her. She has a very disgruntled ex-employee who knows or 
at least suspects what happened to the men on her farm. She has family members from these missing men writing to her and asking about their whereabouts. And now she has one specific family member who's supposed to be coming out and holding a manhunt that she is supposed to be helping with. This all leads up to April 28th, 1908. After firing Ray Lampier, Bell Gunnis had hired Joe Maxson to replace him. He woke up uh, early in the morning and saw that there was smoke in his room, which was on the second story of the Gunnis house. He opened the hall door and saw that there was a whole, basically an entire wall of fire. According to him, he screamed Bell Gunnis's name and the name of her children. When he got no response, he slammed the door and jumped from the second story window and then ran to go and get help. By the time that the fire brigade had arrived at the house, it was a completely gutted smoking ruin. The bodies of Gunnis's three children were found in the wreckage and were confirmed to be her three children. However, the headless female corpse was never positively identified. They were so badly burned that the, one of the bodies of a woman couldn't be immediately identified as Belle Gunnis because she had no head. Now, because Belle Gunnis had made a big deal about all the threats that Ray Lampier had been making, when this fire happened, it was immediately assumed that he was the cause of it. When the sheriff and his deputies went to go question Lampier, he didn't help his case because the first words he asked was, did Gunnis and the kids get out all right? And then he was told about the fire. So he asked them, he asked if they had gotten out of the fire before they had even told them why they were there. So he's arrested immediately as a suspect. Now, the body of the headless woman soon became a big concern for many people. And upon seeing the body, one of the neighbors took one look and said that there was no way that it could be Belle Gunnis. Another farmer, Elle Nicholson, and another woman, Miss Austin Cutler, who was an old friend, also said that there was no way that that body could be Belle's. So doctors measured and, of course, taking into consideration the missing limbs and the head, said the corpse was that of a woman who was five feet three inches tall and weighed no more than 150 pounds. Now this was a bigger cause for concern because friends and neighbors, as well as the um, dressmakers who made garments for Gunnis, said that Belle Gunnis was taller than 5'8 and weighed between 180 and 200 pounds. So in order to go through the debris and like the burned remains of the house, um, there's a miner that hired that was hired to build kind of like a, uh, it's called, a, it's referred to as a sluice, but basically what it is is kind of a water filtration system to go through all the ashes and uncover small things like bone, gold, jewelry, that sort of thing. And so they began looking through the remains. And in May of 1908, there was a piece of bridge work that was found. Now, the dentist identified them as work done for Bell Gunnis, and as a result, the coroner officially concluded that the adult female body found in the ruins was Bell Gunnis. However, many people in the town including the people who had said that there was no possible way that that body could be Belle Gunnis's and the people who had made the dresses for her. None of them really believed it. There were witnesses who said that they saw the dentist kind of burying around in the dirt, reach into his pocket, and then pull out the piece of bridge work. Many people believe that the town, they would rather bribe the dentist to finding, to saying that he found the bridge work that only he would recognize um, and sparing Laporte from all that negative publicity. Around this time, Andrew Helgelian's brother arrived in Laporte and told the sheriff that he believed that his brother had been met with foul play at the Gunnis farm. Joe Maxson, who was the farmhand who jumped out, who jumped out of the second story window, came forward with information. He told the sheriff that Belle Gunnis had told him to bring 
tons of dirt by wheelbarrow to a large area surrounded by a high wire fence right by where the hogs were fed. Uh, Maxon said there were many deep depressions in the ground um, that had been covered by dirt and these filled in holes contained rubbish. She wanted the ground made level so he so that uh, the rubbish wouldn't create a stink or bother the pigs um, and he filled in the depressions. Now the sheriff took back around a dozen men to the farm and began to dig. On May 3rd 1908 the diggers unearthed their body of Jenny Olson and Jenny Olson was the adopted daughter of Bell Gunness. Now Jenny Olson had supposedly left town to go to Los Angeles with a couple who was going to be sponsoring her to go to school. That's what Bell Gunness had said. As they were digging, um, the body of Andrew Helgillian was found, and it was found that the jacket he had been described wearing when he arrived in town was later found in Roy Lampier's clothing collection. So then the entire town's effort, all the available men began searching this area um, for more bodies. These are the these are the confirmed victims who were found. Olby Budsberg of Iowa, Wisconsin, Thomas Linbo, who had left Chicago and gone to work as a hired man for Gunness three years earlier, Henry Gerholt of Scandinavia, Wisconsin, who had gone to marry her a year before and took $1,500, Olaf Savenherud from Chicago, John Moe of Elbow Lake, Minnesota, and Olaf Lindblom, who was from Wisconsin. There was also other possible victims who were reported because these were victims who either had correspondence with Belgunis or were suspected to have been seen in Laporte. And the reason why they're possible is because the bodies were so decomposed and oftentimes had been separated with a hatchet and then buried across these different spots in the hog pen. So they weren't always able to identify concretely who these victims were, but here are some of the suspected victims. Herman Konitzer of Chicago, who disappeared in January 1906, Charles Edmond of New Carlisle, Indiana, George Berry of Tuscola in Illinois, Christy Hilvkin of Dover, Barron County, Wisconsin, who sold his farm and came to Laporte in 1906, Charles Neyberg, who was a 28-year-old Scandinavian immigrant who lived in Philadelphia. He told friends that he was going to visit Belgunis in 1906 and never came back. He had been working for a saloon keeper and reportedly took $500 with him. Olaf Jensen, who was a Norwegian immigrant, wrote his relatives in 1906 that he was going to marry a wealthy widow at Laporte. Bert Chase of Mishawaka, Indiana, who sold his butcher shop and told friends that he knew of a wealthy widow and he was going to look her up. Later on, his brother received a telegram that was supposedly from Aberdeen, South Dakota that, had, that claimed that Bert had been killed in a train wreck. Now, his brother investigated and saw that the, train, that the telegram was completely made up. A hired man named George Bradley of Tuscola, Illinois, is alleged to have gone to Laporte to meet a widow and three children in October 1907. Emil Tell, a Swede from Kansas City, Missouri, is alleged to have gone in 1907 to Laporte. Lee Porter of Bartonville, Oklahoma, separated from his wife and told his brother he was going to marry a wealthy widow in Laporte. John E. Hunter left Pennsylvania on November 25, 1907, after telling his daughters he was going to marry a wealthy widow in, in northern Indiana. So there was a railway man named Abraham Phillips who left in the winter of 1907 to go to northern Indiana and marry a rich widow, and a railway watch was found in the debris of the house. Benjamin Carling of Chicago, Illinois, was last seen by his wife in 1907 after telling her that he was going to Laporte to secure an investment with a rich widow. He took $1,000 from an insurance company and borrowed money from several vents investors as well. Og Gunderson of Green Lake, Wisconsin, Ole Olson of Battle Creek, Michigan, Lindner Nicholson of Huron, South Dakota, Andrew Anderson of 
Lawrence, Kansas, Johann Sorensen of St. Joseph, Missouri, and a possible victim was a man named Hinckley. T.J. Tiefland of Minneapolis is alleged to have come to see Gunnis in 1907. Emile Tell from Kansas City, Missouri is alleged to have gone in 1907 to Laporte. Then there were also some unnamed victims who are suspected to have been part of the remains found. An unknown man and woman who supposedly disappeared in September 1906, the same night Jenny Olson went missing. Now, Gunnis claimed that when these men and women came to visit, that they were a professor and his wife who then took Jenny to California. None of those three were ever heard from again. A hired man from Ohio, age 50, his name is unknown, but alleged to have disappeared, and somehow Bell Gunnis became the heir to his horse and buggy. So there was also an unnamed man from Montana who told people at a resort that he was going to sell Bell Gunnis his horse and buggy, which were found along with several other horse and buggies at the farm. So most of the remains that were on the property, like I said, they couldn't be identified. The exact number of individuals is unknown. So after all these bodies were unearthed, Ray Lampier then went to trial. He was arrested for murder and arson. He denied the charges and his his defense was that the body was not Belle Gunness's, so he hadn't killed her. And this is where more of the controversy comes in. So Lampier's lawyer developed evidence that a local jeweler testified that though the gold in the bridge work had emerged from the fire almost undamaged, the heat of the fire had actually melted the gold planing on several watches and items of gold jewelry. But then local doctors replicated the conditions of the fire by attaching a similar piece of dental bridge work to a human jawbone and placing it in a blacksmith forge. The real teeth crumbled and disintegrated and the gold parts so basically, it had been damaged more than the uh, bridge work offered by the dentist that had supposedly found it at the uh, at the Gunnis farm. And then the hired hand, Joe Maxson, and another man also testified that they'd seen the dentist take their bridge work out of his pocket and plant it just before it was discovered. Lampier was found guilty of arson but acquitted of murder because they couldn't definitively prove that the body found was Bell Gunnis's. On November 26, 1908, he was sentenced to 20 years in state prison in Michigan City and he died of tuberculosis and he died of tuberculosis on December 30th, 1909. In 1910, the, a reverend came forward with a confession that Lampier was said to have made to him while the reverend was present as Lampier was dying. Now, the confession states that Lampier swore that Bell Gunness was still alive. He told the reverend and a fellow convict shortly before his death that he had not murdered anyone, but that he had helped Gunness bury many of her victims. Now, reportedly, this was how Bell Gunness murdered her victims. Uh, she made them comfortable and charmed them by cooking a large meal. She would then drug their drinks, and while the man was sleeping, she would go after them with a cleaver. Or she would go to them while they were sleeping and chloroform them. Then she would carry the body to the basement, place it on a table, and dissect it. She bundled the remains and buried these in a hog pen and in the grounds about the house. And she got the skills from her second husband, who was a butcher and whom she helped out. So sometimes she she's saying, times by poisoning her victim's coffee with strychnine. She also would sometimes dump the corpse into a vat and cover the remains with quicklime. And Lampier even said that if Belle was overly tired about murdering one of the victims, she would chop up the remains and feed them to the hogs. He also answered whether or not the headless female corpse found in the, ho in the house was Gunnis herself. According to Lampier, Gunness had lured a woman from Chicago on the pretense of hiring her as a housekeeper. She had drugged the woman, hit her in the head, 
um, and then decapitated her. She took the head, which had weights tied to it, to a swamp where she threw it in deep water. Then she chloroformed her children and smothered them to death and dragged the bodies along with the headless corpse to the basement. She then dressed the female corpse in her old clothing and removed her false teeth and then put these teeth beside the headless corpse to make sure that it was identified as Belganis. She lit the house on fire and fled. The Empire admitted that he had helped her but that when she was escaping, she didn't meet him where she said she would. According to his count, he had, she had murdered around 42 men, perhaps more, and taken amounts from them ranging from $1,000 to $32,000. She had allegedly accumulated more than $250,000 through her murder schemes over the year. According to Murderpedia, which is where I'm getting this specific piece of information, that would be worth about $6.3 million in 2008. Um, there had been some money in her savings account, but banks later admitted that she had withdrawn most of her funds right before the fire and the fact that she had withdrawn her funds right before her house burned down with the possibility of her in it suggests that she was planning on making an escape the aftermath of all of this is that for several decades bell Gunness was allegedly seen throughout different towns in the united states amateur detectives friends acquaintances people who just read the newspaper would call in and report these sightings um in chicago in san francisco in new york in los Angeles. The sheriff who was in charge of this case for more than 20 years received an average of two reports a month saying that someone had cited her in this town or that she was actually living on this farm. Um, Laporte residents were divided between believing that she was killed by Lempire and that she had faked her own death. So the body that was believed to be Belle Gunness was buried next to her first husband and on November 5th, 2007, um, with permissions of Belle's sister's descendants, a team of forensic anthropologists and graduate students actually exhumed the body in order to figure out if this was actually Belle Gunness or not and answer this decades-long question. Now, uh, they to compare the DNA, they found a sealed envelope from one of Belle Gunness's victims that had been preserved, and they were trying to compare the DNA on the envelope with that of the woman who was buried. However, unfortunately, there was not enough DNA remaining on the envelope However, there was not enough DNA remaining on the envelope to compare with, and so it came back as inconclusive. And that is the absolutely insane mystery of Belle Gunness. I think it's just so insane that, I, I mean, she was this horrific, terrible person, and science has come so far, and yet it still has been undetermined as to whether or not she died in the fire or she actually escaped. But I hoped it was an interesting one for you guys to listen to. I would love to know your opinions on it, and if there was anything that I missed about Belle Gunness, if there's anything that you know about theories about her identity or what happened to her, please share them with me. A lot of this information I actually got from a book by Harold Schechter, um, and it's called Hell's Princess, The Mystery of Belle Gunness, a Butcher of Men. And I'm going to be doing a book review on it on my YouTube channel where I talk about everything bookish if you guys are interested in hearing more about it. But it was also a place that had a lot of information and Harold actually went really in detail. He started off this book with the intention to kind of solve this mystery and so there is a lot of detail in it about Belle's life and, and just a lot of people from the town of Laporte. I also got a lot of information off of Murderpedia, such as a list of her possible victims. So if you guys want to find more information on her there, then I would definitely check it out. And I also want to say, if you want to reach me, I am very bad at having more than one social media account. So I have this YouTube channel where I talk about books and I love doing that, but I think I'm going to try and kind of use that as an umbrella that this falls under 
Lavender. If you want to reach me then and you want to see more about what I post about this podcast, it's going to be under Frumious Reads on all social media accounts. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that kind of stuff. That will also be posting updates about this podcast and what you guys can expect for the upcoming episodes. And for right now, I think that's what I'm going to stick with. Later on, if it makes it easier for me to have a separate social media account for a murderous affair, then, but right now I think I'm going to stick with just managing with everything under that one account. So if you want to find out more, if you want to follow me and hear more about the murderess of the week, then check out my Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Frumious Reads, um, or you can find more on frumiousreads.com. I post all my updates there as well, and you can listen to the episodes there too. But that is the end of this episode, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. Let me know what you think, but for now, I will see you guys next week. All right, goodbye. This episode is brought to you by Podbean Live. Podbean Livestream is a unique platform for turning your podcast production into a live show. It's open to any podcaster on any hosting site. Easily invite multiple co-hosts and guests to join your live stream. Earn money from live show ticket sales and get listener rewards and engage your audience in new and exciting ways. Ready to get started? Sign up today at www.podbean.com slash live. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash live.